Tens of thousands of Native American children were removed from their homes and put into boarding schools where they were forced to assimilate into white culture. And that pain is still felt today. Generations of children growing up hearing indigenous language barely being spoken, if at all. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Some Native Americans are making it a priority to keep language and oral traditions alive. This is an effort that's important to Doreen Weesey, president of the American Indian Association of Illinois. We spoke to Doreen about revitalizing her own tribe's language, Ojibwe. I started by asking Doreen about the impact of boarding schools on her family. Well, I think the biggest impact was when I realized that they knew none of their language and or the history of their tribes or anything about things like treaties and what, you know, how they'd come to be born at, at White Earth. Well, my, um, and so I think, and I even wrote a poem about um, that starts off, my mother didn't know why she was born at White Earth. It's like people, it's all of that memory, historic memory. It's like it had been erased from their minds. And this is really what mm. happened at the boarding school is that people grew up not knowing anything kind of except the immediate uh, and, and Christianity. So they didn't talk to you much then about their experiences? No, because they, they, they didn't really, you know, they were, I think, as most Native people, they were concerned about surviving. We've really come through hundreds of years of, of survival from come out of a period when most of our people died or were killed. Uh, out of a, we really had this incredibly great genocide in this country, which most people don't know about. Um, in fact, in the, coming here, the Lyft driver said to me, where did your people come from? I was shocked. Just, he was from Africa. Just like that? Yeah, just like that. And he had been, he had been here for 30 years and did not know where American Indian, that we're the original people of this, of this country. So we had a great conversation. Wow. I bet you uh, had some educating to do in, in that, in that uh, lift ride. So what's it been like then for you trying to piece together your family's history? It's been um, difficult because both my, I, I never got to interview my grandmothers. My, and I think that um, that is really what, as I, I, I first started off in, uh, as a filmmaker because I wanted to change the image of Native people. When I was growing up, the image of Native people was still cowboys and Indians on television and um, our appearances on products. And also there was a, uh, it was a beginning of some focus on native people in urban areas, but it was very negative and there was no image of native women whatsoever. So my, that was my effort. I wanted to change that image. And so that I began searching for my own history and then the history of other people that, um, I worked with it when I came to Chicago. Yeah. Well, um, back in the 1980s, you co-directed a project at the Newberry Library, and it was to capture oral histories of American Indians here in Chicago. And now you've been asked to do an oral history for Newberry, right? So what's it like to now be sort of on the other side of this process? Now you're the interviewee. Well, I'm still doing some of the interviewing, too. Uh, <laughs> so you're, you're wearing both hats. <laughs> I'm wearing both hats. But um, it's it's great because it makes you, being an interviewee, you have to think about things uh, differently. It's not the way you normally think and talk in your everyday life. You have to really reflect and think about your own history, your family history, 
what are those, you know, what are those reasons you came here? Um, and I recently did that. Uh, I was, I had to write a application for the um, Field MacArthur uh, Leaders Award. And in doing that, I had to like kind of summarize my whole life in one page. And it really was great because it made me realize that everything that I had worked uh, for and on was about social justice and, and that that kind of oral history had been a way that I had learned mm. about all of those, those things that we had been, um, that we were not allowed to do. As an example, we were not allowed to sing and dance until the 1920s. My father was born in 1912, so it was in his childhood. He could not sing and dance Amer you know, American Indian. Mm -hmm. And then the same thing with when people went to boarding schools, they were not allowed to speak their language. So this is in our, you know, a time that I know the people who lived through this time. So then it really had a great impact on me and, and, and the work that I was to do. So in doing oral history, I, I guess I just want to learn as much as I can, and I want people to teach as much as they can because our, our history is oral. It's not written in books. You won't find our history in the three universities, Chicago, right. the big universities. Most of it is still in the hearts and minds of our people. And you've got to tell them, which is, which is the work that you're doing. You, you interviewed elders who are now no longer alive. Um, Susan Kelly Power died last year. She helped found the American Indian Center of Chicago. Uh, but you say that when you interviewed her, she would always repeat the story of another woman, Clara. Who's Clara? Tell us about her. <laughs> Susan was very humble. She never wanted to be recognized for the work that she did. And she always said, remember Clara, remember Clara. Because when Susan came here, there were no, uh, the Indian Center hadn't been founded. There was no one to help the Native people that came here. And often they came, like the new immigrants, they had no place to live. They couldn't speak English. They had, they had no idea what these jobs were that they were applying for. They, they had never worked these jobs. So Clara opened her home to Native people that came here, let them sleep on her floor, always had a pot of soup on her stove, and she, um, and she taught Native people how to sew. She was a seamstress in the uh, dressmaking district, and she, was, so that's, she also taught them a job. Mm. So that to Susan, this was a value that she wanted us to continue, that she wanted us uh, to continue to help each other as Native people. And so that was why she always told me the story of Clara. And I did get to meet Clara when I was a young um, photographer. Oh, you did? I did meet Clara. I have a photograph of her that I took and some other elders that I worked with at the time at the Native American Committee. So that um, I love it when I can tie my story to the stories of other people and then that they they can also then spread out to their relatives and mm -hmm. other people. Like I've told that story to people that are related to Clara that never knew that story. That's and incredible. So I want them to celebrate Clara too. Yeah. <laughs> now they won't forget about Clara for right. sure. Uh, you came to Chicago when you were 18. You're 74 now, mm -hmm. I understand, right? You've lived an incredible and full life. So I'm curious to hear this from you. What do you want people to remember about you? <laughs> Oh my, that's a really hard question. Um, I guess that I did everything I could to help our people. That I became uh, educated, and once I did that, I realized that that was going to be the path out of poverty. 
and that that would be, and then that we, but we also needed to know about our culture, our language, our music, our dance. We needed to know all that to be whole, whole people in uh, our, our mind, body, and spirit. Because without that, we, we would have, we would have been empty. We would have been lost. Mm-hmm. Like, much like I was when I came here at 18, I didn't know. You music felt lost. And dance and my, um, and, and my, my language. So that I did, I felt once I met, but I mean, I felt lost in that, oh, but not for too long because I met, a, there was a whole thriving community here of Native people that had, most had come during relocation and they were, it was like a renaissance because it was the only time in the history, urban history where there was federal money. So we built schools. We, I was just talking to the, again, to the cab driver telling him about my first program that I built was the uh, Native American Committee Adult Learning Center. I developed the first GED program. I taught people to read. I was only in college myself. And so I was right in the center of everything that was going on. The people built a clinic. They built a college. And I I later was able to become president of that college. And so it it all was a fantastic um, life here. Yeah, you've you've dedicated your life to, to education for American Indians. So something else you you talk about of course we know you you are very uh, big on the importance of learning from your elders, right? Also of doing service in return for knowledge. You experienced that firsthand with your uncle Leon Mike. He was a powwow singer. So I want to listen to the grand entry to a powwow that he participated in. What did he teach you? Oh, that would take a long time. <laughs> sum it up for <laughs> us. To sum about it. Um, I guess that, um, well, the, the magic of uh, American Indian music and dance and, um, and also um, and spirituality, that, that it's all together and that we, um, it's part of who we need to be. It's part of what the Creator wants us to do and, and be part of. And I think that, um, and that the resilience, uh, this was a man that was blind. He had no legs. He was a kidney transplant. He had terrible finger neuropathy and that he was, he wanted to be out living life, helping other people. He, he wanted to go, we traveled around the country praying for people, mm-hmm. setting up special services for them, singing for people, dancing for people. And it was, he wanted to be part of that. And so I think that that resilience that never once did he ever, um, until his final day, uh, blame the, the creator for how he was, how his physical body was. He praised him to that final moment. And I got to be there on that final day. Oh, that's special. What's your approach or your advice to people who want to record their oral histories? Oh, I encourage everyone to do it, no matter if you're American Indian or uh, or whatever, wherever your people are from, because there's so many things that get lost and we don't have an opportunity to ask those questions to um, our elders, to our parents, to our grandparents, and that there's it makes your your history so much more alive, and then you can you can tie it into into uh, historic moments in history of the United States and the world, and see why a little bit about why people. Did do the things they do and why they 
moved to Chicago or why they, you know, they lived in a certain neighborhood or why, you know, why this happened or that happened. And without that, we're just kind of limited. We're, we're linking ourselves to that history. Our history of our people makes our lives so much richer. I'm curious, take us back. I mean, why choose to do oral histories in the first place? Why not written ones? Well, our life is all oral. Our life has, for thousands of years, our life has have been oral. That's how we have uh, taught our children, and that's how our ancestors taught each other and their children. And so I think that it's the, um, and as we fast forward to modern times, when children were taken and placed in the boarding schools, and then when people realized what they had lost, I think it really began a movement where people realized what they had lost, that then they realized we better capture that history, that that music, that language, that knowledge from our elders before they all pass away. So I would say this movement probably started in the 60s and with Native people themselves. Anthropologists had tried it in the past, and there are some wonderful books that were written. There are uh, Bibles that are written in tribal languages. Mm-hmm. Some, in some places, that's the only documents that exist because the people were killed or, and, or died from disease. So there is no other, there is no other record. So for, for me, I guess like, because I had an interest in filmmaking, and that um, that is basically oral. It has a visual component also, but it's basically oral. And then um, radio and television, and um, then and and uh, that I I began to see that I, it was necessary to do that. Otherwise, we would have lost so much of, of who we are and who you know what our histories mm-hmm. were. And then, of course, the uh, advent of the the lighter weight video equipment. Um, that have really helped. And now let's say this, the stuff, the phone, you know, where you can record things and, and edit them in your own phone. I mean, my first video recorder was a 45 pound reel to reel Sony black and white video recorder. Wow. That was, we thought was light and amazing. And <laughs> of course. <laughs> so it was the next best thing. It was the next best thing. <laughs> but I think we wanted to, um, so the main part of it is to me, to, to really, to, to me, to record our our life's history and the, the history of our tribes and families. Yeah. You point to language as a thread for culture. What do you mean by that? Language contains our worldview. So that when we study language, when we learn language, we realize how different it, it, our languages are from English. Mm-hmm. And that 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 then sets the stage for how our people saw the world in very different ways. So that if you have a language, let's say, um, let's say the Eskimos have, um, or the Aleuts know, have a hundred different ways of saying snow. We have one word in English. We have the word snow. Yeah. So then, let's say if we have, you know, we have different ways in terms of uh, of uh, where verbs are placed, where nouns are placed, and how even when that translation, let's say there were non-Native people who were recording words for Bibles and things like that, they didn't understand the meaning of the word they were hearing. They kind of understood it in the way of English so that it wasn't really quite saying what it, what it, what it really meant. Right. 
So like, I'm trying to think of a good example that I could give you. Um, was it in a way being watered down? It was watered down, right, because there were one word did not mean one word, or it might not even be the word that they thought. It would, could mean a whole sentence. Yes, yeah, I get you. And, or it could be um, in our in Ojibwe language, and I've, I haven't learned it yet, there is a, 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 a word for um, blueberry pie that is almost a sentence long because it didn't, you know, in English we say blueberry pie like we see a blueberry in a pie. Yeah. No, this was a, it, what the blueberry pie in Ojibwe says is it's the way you make the pie, you know, all the ingredients that are in it, the process, so that you're, they, because they had, ah. we didn't have pie. You know, we didn't, our ancestors <laughs> didn't make pie. But what's good about that is that languages are alive when they continue to make new words. Well, while we're on it, why don't you teach us a little bit more Ojibwe today? Okay. Um, okay, how do you introduce yourself in the language? Bonjour, Anin. Bonjour, that sounds like French. It does, but it's not. It's, uh, it's, uh, Say it one more time. It's it uh, was made before the French connections. Ah. And that's why people, some people say Bujou, and, uh, and, but in, Ch- in uh, Canada, it's Bujou Anin. There are 26 different Ojibwe tribes in the United States and over 100 in Canada. We're the largest tribe east of the Mississippi and have been for, uh, for probably several hundred years or maybe longer because um, we didn't have census, and it was before the internet. Right, so right, right. I don't know really what the census was, but of course. we do know that Ojibwe is the most prevalent language, um, as I said, east of the Mississippi and in Canada, along with Cree. They're about equal Cree and Ojibwe. So that um, those are uh, that's one reason we teach that that's a prevalent language that is being taught. But that said, there are many different dialects. You can imagine 126 different groups of people. They say things in a different way. So, but that is everyone knows what that means. If you say bujuanin, bujuanin, you can say you're saying hello. What's the song that you sing when you're teaching children? One of the first songs that I created because I'm very bad at languages. Um, so I would take a couple words and then I would make them into a song that they would, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a a song that they already knew. An example was um, uh, um. Row, row your boat. So then I, I wanted them to learn the words miigwech, which is thank you, and then miigwech to the great spirit um, as a form of prayer before we had, I have an after-school children's program and as a way of thanking the creator for our food. So then we, I would have, I taught them to sing when they were very little, like four years old. Miigwech, miigwech, gizimanadu, miigwech, miigwech, gizimanadu. And today they're now 16 years old and they still remember that song. Oh my gosh, that's so delightful. <laughs> what is your favorite Ojibwe word or phrase? Don't tell me it's blueberry pie. No, because <laughs> I can't say that. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, I think uh, Anishinaabe, because Anishinaabe is the, I mean, um, human being, first people. Um, and it, it's a, it's the umbrella under which people recognized all the speakers of and the descendants of the speakers of Ojibwe, and that it um, and it's related to, I guess linguists are related it to the Algonquin languages, but it it draws again it draws that historic thread between the people all the people that are here today mm-hmm. that speak uh, a language similar 
to Ojibwe that we're all Anishinaabe people. Yeah. Tell us what language revitalization efforts look like right now at the American Indian Association of Illinois. We basically work with the people, with people that know their language. And when we can get them to teach our children in our after-school program, we work with them to do that. We currently, um, well, this past summer, we had a summer, our first leadership institute for, for our teens. And in that, we went through um, an entire uh, lesson, oh, well, several, a booklet of lessons on the Ho-Chunk language. Because our children, we have our Ho-Chunk and Ojibwe mm-hmm. and Lakota. And so then we brought in uh, a Lakota teacher who will, um, I need to backstep a little bit, but the song that we heard and the man that was singing, my uncle, Leon, Mike, he's Ho-Chunk, uh, yes. similar to your last speaker. <laughs> yes. But he, um, and so we, that's why we taught that language. And I know songs in the Ho-Chunk language. And then, so then we uh, had in Ojibwe, there was a man that just recently did a book and he's a language, a linguist. He's, he's native. He's, a, he's Ojibwe as well. And he wrote a book called The, Se- the Grandfather Teachings, The Seven Grandfather Teachings. Mm-hmm. And so we went through that entire book and all the lesson plans to, to do with that this nice. summer. So the children learned about this historic grandfather teachings. And then it's a lot about values and about language and about history, all combined. It's so not, great that they're getting that now. Yeah, yeah. And then we also had our, um, our elder uh, teacher, who's Lakota, that she came and visited their, their, the class and she brought her teenage daughter with her. And so she kind of brought, you know, history with her. And she talked a little bit about she actually was in boarding schools in Chicago, a boarding school and an orphanage here. So she kind of talked about how she overcame a lot of the struggles mm-hmm. you know, of being homeless, living in the park, things like that. But that she, you know, and that she loves her language and still, but she also has a master's degree yeah. from the University of Illinois. Well, besides being here on Reset with us, tell us before you go, I mean, how else are you marking Indigenous Peoples Day? I am going to be on my way after I leave here to Palatine Library, and I'm going to bring my dance company, the Blackhawk Performance Company. We're going to be having over 20 uh, singers and dancers there, and we're we're going to meet the people of Palatine. Awesome. Sounds like a great time. That's Doreen Weesey, president of the American Indian Association of Illinois, she spent her life dedicated to preserving her indigenous language and history. Thank you so much for, for sharing with us today. Thank you. This conversation was produced by Max Lubers and it was edited by Dan Tucker and Ethan Schwab. Stories like this are so important to share and we bring you these conversations daily. Don't forget to like and subscribe to our pod so that you never miss a new one. You can also check out our entire catalog of interviews at wbez.org slash reset. That's it for today. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll meet again tomorrow.